Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. It is my absolute great pleasure to be here with Dr. Chile Ebo Asuji, former judge and president of the International Criminal Court, where he served for almost a decade from 2012 to 2021. Prior to joining the ICC, Chile served as a legal advisor to the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, as principal appeals counsel for the prosecution of Charles Taylor at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and as head of chambers and lead prosecution trial counsel in several posts at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. For those of you that know him, he's also a prolific academic, having taught international criminal law in Canada and written and edited several volumes and journals on international criminal law and public international law. Chile, I have had the great privilege of getting to know you in various professional contexts. And I know I speak for ASIL when I say that I'm just so pleased to have you with us on our podcast. So welcome. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's a great honor to and privilege to be here indeed. Thank you. So Chile, I want to do a, start with a really a table setting question and, and talk about the ICC. So this year is special. It marks the ICC's 20th anniversary. I wanted to start with you, given your perspective, to tell us about your views on how the court's mandate has evolved over time, and do you think it remains relevant today? Uh, that's a great question. Um, the, I would not say that the mandate has evolved over time because the reason for uh, setting it up remains fat, but the has the, you know, to I think it remains relevant today. Of course, the relevance of anything uh, resides uh, in its own raison d'etre, as we say, and the reason for being of the ICC was that from time immemorial, human beings have been their own worst enemies, and that is literally speaking. They have committed the worst kinds of atrocities against one another, genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and the crime of aggression, of course. Now, typically these are committed by strong, strong nations, uh, strong groups, strong individuals against the weak, often without accountability. Uh, it was in that context that the ICC was created, the international community said, enough is enough. Um, we need to set up uh, an instrument of accountability so that justice doesn't become an orphan in the national realm. So ICC can only become irrelevant when one of two things happens. The one is that people no longer commit the crime of aggression, war crimes, crimes against humanity or, um, you know, genocide. When people stop doing that, you will say, what, what is the relevance of the ICC? Or when people do that, but we can say, yes, those who do that, there is a guarantee of accountability for them at a place other than the ICC. Then that is the second condition under which we can say the ICC has become irrelevant. As long as we don't have those conditions, and we don't, the war in Ukraine 
is the latest reminder of that, then the ICC must remain relevant. Thank you, Chile. And unfortunately, given the world as we find it, given the chaos, given all of the, the, the crimes that you mentioned, I would say that indeed uh, the court remains relevant. Well, let me ask you um, more generally, why should people, especially non-lawyers, care about the ICC, care about international criminal justice, especially where often it involves crimes that occurred far from their home communities? Well, the, the, it, the people um, should care because the, the preamble of the um, Rome Statute uh, talks about the shared heritage of humanity, um, you know, a mosaic piece together, a mosaic of our civilization. So we're all connected. And when these things happen in distant places, it resonates to us wherever we are as human beings. The US, for example, is one place where that question becomes exceedingly relevant. And I get asked that question often, why should Americans care, for instance, because America, as you know, is not a member state of the Rome Statute. And I tell people, look, there is nothing that symbolizes America and the way America sees itself and the way the world sees America more than the Statue of Liberty. And that statue has a fitting nickname, the New Colossus. But more important than the um, gigantic statue uh, that the statue and its nickname convey, there is the essence of the matter conveyed by the moving sonnet. Um, those who have been to the Statue of Liberty would see uh, on a plaque at the foot of the statue, the plaque uh, containing the poem by Emma Lazarus, with that name or that title, The New Colossus. And those memorable lines which American presidents have reeled out from time to time, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, uh, the wretched refuse of your teeming um, shore. I send these, the homeless, tempest tossed to me, and I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That is the essence of the matter. And the wretched of the yards, to borrow the words of France, for no, uh, that the new colossus uh, beckons uh, humanity tossed up and about by the tempest of civil wars, of wars of aggression, uh, uh, genocide, crimes against humanity occurring in distant places. And I know that the better angels of the American spirit uh, does care about what happens to their fellow human beings in distant places. So that is one altruistic reason why um, people, Americans in particular, need to care. But there is something else, even for those who conceive of America's greatness uh, by the gesture of keeping immigrants out by building tall walls. Uh, now we need to keep in mind here mm -hmm. that one of the best ways to keep immigrants out is by reducing 
the drivers of migration at source. And there's nothing that drives, uh, one of the things that drive, um, you know, um, migration, mass migration more than anything else is violent strife in the manner of conflicts, gross human rights, abuses back home. So if all would help to bring accountability to those who commit those, who engineer or who foment those violent strife back home, it will help to you know, reduce mass migration that um, some people think we need to keep out by building walls. Thank you, Chile. It's, as usual, beautifully put. It's it's at once, isn't it, a matter of public general interest as a global human, you know, global community of of peoples, and at the same time, it can be about self interest. And those two things are not necessarily inconsistent, but they all point towards caring uh, about what occurs far from home communities, don't they? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to, to switch to a question about um, your tenure as ICC president. So during that time, obviously, you, only, you not only acted as judge, but also representative of the court in countless public appearances and during, I would say, a particularly difficult period in the court's history. During your tenure, the court was drawing significant criticism from African nations and had to grapple with the sanctions imposed on the court officials themselves by former President Trump. What effect did those difficult moments have on the court? How did you decide when and how to speak out when you did? Uh, thank you. The effect of those um, behaviors were um, quite demoralizing uh, for the court. And um, not only in terms of the threats that were directed at the court, the height uh, of it um, was the uh, conduct of the uh, Trump administration against the court. Mind you, it wasn't only the Trump administration, like you pointed out. There are other countries uh, that also did their best to undermine confidence uh, of the court and in the court. But um, America being the colossus that um, it, it, it is, when the President of the United States takes an interest in doing that, he resonates differently and feels uh, differently to those receiving it. But it wasn't just a threat, Catherine. Um, one of the things that was most demoralizing, as I saw it, uh, was the deliberate campaign of falsehoods that the most senior members of that administration were engaged in against the court raw propaganda, really dirty stuff. Now, they were doing that um, in hopes that, um, you know, everyone would be afraid to contradict them, afraid to contradict them publicly. Uh, the diplomats who represent the states' parties to, to the core, the Assembly of States' Parties, the Trump administration calculated uh, would not dare to be seen contradicting them in public. They calculated that court officials would also be cowed um, to do the same or uh, would be constrained by the ethos of restraint um, to not um, speak up. So for a long while, there was 
basically an open space that, you know, was filled up with that kind of rubbish. Now, it was in those circumstances that mm. I decided to, to step in uh, because that was having real effect on the morale of people, to hear people who work so hard and put themselves in harm's way to do this kind of work, to hear their work diminished by such lies. Now, um, in a sense, the, um, the, there was, in effect, a court of public opinion that that kind of conduct has set up by the uh, administration and the defendant in that course of public opinion happens to be the ICC. Yes, of course, I was a judge of the ICC, and um, but that litigation in the course of public opinion was not occurring in my court where I could, you know, uh, control the proceedings, <laughs> right? So, but it happens that um, I also um, was a litigator in my past life. I used to be defense counsel and I used to be a prosecutor at other times. I know how to litigate a case and I know how to write uh, briefs intended to be persuasive. So I saw a need to put those skills to, to use in those circumstances. So in a matter of speaking, as we would say, if you were in England or Nigeria, I put uh, my judicial wig uh, off, put it to the side and put on my barrister's wig and then had to step forward to represent the ICC in that, um, you know, global court of public opinion as a matter of last resort. So that was basically uh, the calculation that went into my uh, speaking up to correct some of the, to correct the record where that needed to be done at the time. Thank you, Chile. So I want to talk about the war in Ukraine, which you, you referenced earlier. Now, it has had the effect of focusing, I think, the global community on the dangers and costs of impunity for leaders of powerful states, especially the permanent, the five permanent members of the Security Council. Now, in the United States, the war seems to have sparked a renewed and positive interest in the role of the ICC in obtaining accountability and justice for war crimes. So putting aside for a minute, whether it's realistic, the US would ratify the Rome Statute. I wanna put that aside. What, if anything, is the ICC missing without the U.S. as a state party? And what would it mean for international criminal justice if the U.S. joined? Thank you very much. That's a, a wonderful question. Uh, yes, uh, you do want to put aside the question of ratification. Yes, we, we, we can. But allow me to mention, because uh, it, it becomes that big elephant in the room, so to speak. It occupies everything. Why hasn't the U.S. ratified and all that? Uh, we can put it aside. But allow me to say that um, ICC, the ICC treaty, the Rome Statute, is not the only international treaty that the U.S. has not ratified. I think that needs to be uh, stress. There's a host of other older international treaties that the U.S. has not ratified. This would include the Convention on the Rights of the Child that was adopted in 1989. That's 33 years ago. And there's only one country in the whole world that, has, that is not a party to that. Every other country is a party to it, except one, and that country the United States. Now, there's a convention on the elimination of uh, discrimination against women adopted in 1979, that's 43 years ago. U.S. is amongst only handful of countries, about six countries that have not become 
parties to it. And it took the U.S. 40 years to finally become a party to the Convention Against Genocide after Senator William Proxmire decided to take it up upon himself to harangue his colleagues in the Senate for 20 years, uh, making about 3,200 uh, 3, or so uh, speeches every day, uh, sorry, for, for, during that period, uh, sorry, for a total of 3,200 um, speeches during 20 years, for, for the Senate to finally ratify that. Now, why am I saying this? I say it because given that the Rome Statute was adopted only 24 years ago, it is not too late to hope that the U.S. will ratify it one day. That is a hope indeed. And why is that? Uh, there are people who, and that now with that I go to, to your question, uh, there are those um, who wish the U.S. to become a member state because that will straighten the, the court uh, from the perspective of legitimacy is a word people use all the time that would uh, enhance that, that those who pray for wish uh, that ratification for that reason. But there are also, please, there are also many who worry about the very opposite scenario, that the U.S. membership will undermine the legitimacy of the court because people have seen that American politicians do not mind politicizing courts of law. We see that with the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, would the colossus throw its colossal weight around in disruptive ways if a member of the court? That's some worry, and people have that fear. But looking beyond all that, and asking why should the U.S. become a member of the court. I am one of those in favor of having the court, uh, the U.S. Uh, join the court, however unlikely that may be. Now, there is an, a PhD thesis hanging there. Uh, you know, why should the U.S. become a member of the court? But I, we don't have time for a PhD thesis. Let's, first of all, uh, we may, it, it, it may be enough uh, to leave it with uh, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, whom I call the mother of human rights. And one of the quotes that's a favorite of mine uh, is the one about, quote, our own land and our own flag cannot be replaced by any other land or any other flag, but we can join with other nations under a joint flag to accomplish something good for the world that we cannot accomplish alone, unquote. So that would be a powerful reason to have the U.S. as a member state of the Rome Statute. Thank you, Chile. I want to stay with with Russia and Ukraine for a moment um, and ask you ask you this question. So the the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression between Russia and Ukraine. Do you support efforts to establish an ad hoc tribunal to pursue justice for that and perhaps other crimes? And in that context, are you consider, concerned that an ad hoc tribunal outside the ICC system would damage the court's status as a permanent international criminal tribunal? Uh, thank you. The, already, the um, ICC would have jurisdiction for the other crimes, except the crime of aggression. ICC would have jurisdiction the way things are set up 
for any war crimes, you know, crimes against humanity or genocide um, alleged to be committed in the context of this war on the territory of Ukraine. But what the ICC does not have is the jurisdiction over the crime of aggression because of a specific gap that exists in the Rome statute. The gap they say is that ICC cannot have jurisdiction in relation to the crime of aggression in respect of a state that is not a member state of the Rome statute except when the Security Council refers that state to the ICC. Now, Russia not being a member state of the ICC it means uh, ICC can have jurisdiction only when the Security Council refers a case to the ICC. But we know that that will not happen because Russia being one of the P5s will veto that kind of um, resolution. So that's a dead uh, um, uh, angle. So that is a reason why there's this, this concern, uh, this uh, question about setting up a, a separate um, tribunal, ad hoc tribunal for the crime of aggression in Ukraine. Do I support that effort? I do, but on one condition. I do on the condition that at the same time or before that ad hoc tribunal is established, that gap in the Rome Statute needs to be closed. It needs to be plugged because it is only in respect of that crime of aggression that we have that kind of gap. It doesn't exist for the others. And there's powerful states, the US uh, led the effort to have that gap created to remain there. We have now realized that it was a foolish um, thing to do. Now is the time to close that gap. And I only support a separate tribunal for aggression if we close that gap in relation to the crime of aggression in the Rome Statute. Uh, otherwise, uh, we're going to remain here with this dog of allegation that international criminal justice is a tool for the powerful uh, at one point against the weaker. Now, um, uh, Russia tends to be you know, on the receiving end of things that weaken in the, in the public opinion. So this is the time now to create something different, uh, but we cannot leave it at that. Thank you. So let me ask you another hard question, <laughs> as I've been doing. Do you fear that establishing an ad hoc tribunal for Ukraine would give the impression that the international community devotes more resources to ending impunity in European conflicts than in conflicts outside in other places outside the ICC jurisdiction. Now, obviously, we're all aware that the heinous crimes have been committed in conflicts in Syria and Myanmar and Tigray and elsewhere, with perhaps less advanced efforts to create ad hoc tribunals there. Katarina, uh, that, uh, that, that question is more fair than difficult. It is a fair question, and it isn't only in relation to establishing um, an ad hoc tribunal for the war in Ukraine, aggression, uh, crime in Ukraine, that that question arises, given who are leading the effort to do that. Actually, that question already arises because of the 
pouring the new pouring of resources into the ICC that we've seen since the war in Ukraine began so that the ICC can prosecute the rest of the crimes in Ukraine. I was at The Hague not too long ago, and it was music to my ear when I heard uh, the prosecutor say that it was flush with money. <laughs> now, during my time at the ICC, that was a pipe dream. Every year there was mm -hmm. a fight for budget, and state parties, the powerful states, had this thing they called zero nominal growth, meaning the ICC was to, uh, that theory would have meant the ICC's budget would not have grown from 2002 when the court started operating. So there was a fight. It was very, very, you know, aggressive, dis uh, discouraging thing to see every year. Now, uh, suddenly the tabs open up and it's a good thing as long as that tab remains open so that the court can do its work properly in relation to all the other situations where the court is doing its work and not only in Ukraine. So it is a fair question. And that is as, uh, as the deputy uh, chair of the high level panel of legal experts on media freedom. You've been kind enough and I've just been delighted that you recently agreed to join the high level panel. And for listeners out there, this high level panel of legal experts advises something called the Media Freedom Coalition, which is a coalition of 51 countries who've agreed to prioritize media freedom. And Chile, as well as you well know, literally thousands of journalists are in peril. They're in peril because they're being harassed and targeted uh, and otherwise, uh, otherwise focused upon for uh, assassination attempts, anything and everything to stop them from doing the incredibly important work of independent reporting and truth-telling, which as we all know, is one of the pillars of effective democracies. And it is a, a critical situation across the globe. So Chile to you, how can international criminal justice help to bring accountability to the abuses that journalists are suffering? Thank you very much, um, Catherine, uh, for, uh, first of all, for uh, inviting me to join that you and Lord Neuberger uh, sent out that invitation and, and um, of course, and uh, you, um, uh, let's put it this way. I, I like to be where you are, Catherine. So, <laughs> that, that's the I like short, that too. <laughs> that's the short answer to, to that. Now, how can the um, uh, you know international law, international criminal law, help to um, protect the work of journalists or journalists and the abuses they, they suffer in the course of their work is a very big question and very important one. Uh, it's important for us to have um, journalism for the things they do. They have to shine uh, the light on the abuses that happen so that the world would know what's going on. And naturally, those who don't want that light to be shown on awful contact will like to extinguish um, or eliminate whoever it is that's carrying that torch. And that's what uh, brings journalists in the, in the, um, in the direct um, you know, uh, sight of harm, of those who want to cause harm. Now, uh, international criminal law can help to address the um, 
abuses journalists suffer. Uh, if we look, for instance, um, at the crimes against humanity being a crime under the Rome statute, a set of crimes under the Rome statute, that crime is defined as in terms of um, uh, widespread or systematic attack directed against a civilian um, population. Now, there's a number of um, conducts or crimes that come within under that rubric. You would have murder, for instance. Murder is something journalists um, suffer some abuse. Uh, we have um, imprisonment or other severe deprivation of physical liberty as a crime against humanity. That is something journalists endure as a hazard of their trade. We have torture. Journalists suffer that. We have persecution, right, uh, against uh, members of a civilian population on a number of grounds, uh, including, you know, political um, or any other ground of universally recognized as impermissible under international law, and that would be opinion. So you have that as something journalists suffer. Now, under that kind of uh, rubric, you can bring um, uh, accountability to those who um, commit abuses against journalists. And it need not be that the, for us to have a crime against uh, that kind of um, conduct as a crime against humanity, it, the journalists must be the exclusive victims of it in any particular instance. No, um, journalists can uh, be subject of crimes against humanity amongst um, widespread systematic attack of a similar kind or other kinds against civilian populations around them. So that I give the example, for instance, if you have uh, the during the time of apartheid in South Africa, uh, the victims of that were black people in South Africa and other perhaps um, uh, you know, uh, uh, racial racialized people in South Africa. But if you had a white journalist who made a commitment to report that crime to the world saying no, that shouldn't happen, and that white journalist is targeted and killed or tortured or disappeared, then what happened to that white journalist will be part of a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population, predominantly Blacks and Indians and other racialized groups. So that was one way we can use crimes against humanity to address the um, abuses journalists suffer. Thank you, Chile. So one, one last question, um, last couple of questions. Looking back on your incredible career as barrister, academic, judge, and ICC president, what was the hardest decision you ever had to make, and has it all been worth it? Uh, great, great question. <laughs> uh, thank you for the kind words, uh, um, Catherine. Now, I would say that volunteering to be the president of the ICC is the hardest decision by far. Uh, why is that? 
uh, is because of the effect on a young family. I had a young family who had already endured um, divided attention from that career you described as incredible. But now, one of my favorite lines in all of music, excuse me, <clears throat> one of my favorite lines in all of music is um, a stanza from Taylor Swift's song, <laughs> uh, Coney Island. There is a stanza appropriately delivered in the, should we say, manful baritone voice of Matt Berninger, the uh, lead singer of um, the Cincinnati band called um, The National. And the line goes like this. Uh, the question pounds my head. What a lifetime of achievement. If I pushed you to the edge, but you are too polite to leave me. You are too polite to leave me. Uh, do you miss the rogue who coaxed you to the paradise and left you there? So these are some of the lines out of that um, magnificent song. And Catherine, those very questions always pound mm. my own head in relation to my own family, my wife, my children, uh, in relation to the work I've done over the years. The question, is it worth it? Um, that is a question. Now, the way I would answer that is that I saw these, be it the work I did in Rwanda as a prosecutor there, or the work I did at the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, or the Special Court for Sierra Leone in particular, right? I saw these as crucial efforts that were meant to address the kinds of privations that had afflicted my own life at a very early age. War, wars of like, uh, war crimes, even the crime of genocide. I was four years old when the Nigerian civil war broke out in Nigeria in 1966. Uh, genocide was part of the story of that war. Uh, war crimes as well. I witnessed an air raid, Catherine, um, uh, plane flying low above me to go up and drop a bomb at a civilian market five kilometers away where my mother had gone for shopping. Thank God she survived, but many didn't. Now, when as an adult opportunities presented themselves to me to solve the cause of accountability for which, um, to, to bring accountability to those kinds of conduct, I had to step up and give the calling everything I had. Now, I'm not very good at multitasking, right? So I was left only hoping that uh, my family would understand my absences. And uh, there are, Catherine, many absences that have remained heartbreaking to me even today. Mm. So that's my answer to that. I cannot tell you a perfect story. But that's the best that I can do. Now, in case of the ICC, for instance, uh, that was, this remains an important um, institution. But uh, when I was at the court, I saw it struggling. It was struggling before I got there since 1989, uh, I believe. Sorry, 1990, um, 2009, sorry, 2009. 
2009, when the um, um, Abasha was indicted and the African Union, and he was a powerful man at the time, uh, Mama Gaddafi was alive and well at the time, and the court started facing this onslaught from the African Union to the point of um, people, serious talk of movement of mass withdrawal of African states was being orchestrated by those who were feeling the pressure of the ICC against what they do. And there I was watching this as a judge of the court. And I felt that, yes, there is something, there's a role, that, a modest role that I can try and play and see if I could help stabilize the court. And that was what the primary reason that drove my uh, putting up a hand to serve. And was it worth it? I would say yes, I hope, because I made that concern um, one of primary, a priority for me. And um, within, you know, a year or so into my service as the president, the African um, Union started coming around to the point where uh, we now started experiencing relative stability by the time I left the court. So that was worth it. Now, was it worth all the sacrifice? I don't know. You know, I, I should say that I would be surprised <laughs> that you quote both Eleanor Roosevelt and Taylor Swift, but I'm not because <laughs> I know you. Um, but that was incredibly eloquent. And certainly from the perspective of all of us, we are extraordinarily grateful to you that you did stand up, stand up, step up uh, and accept that call of duty. So thank you. Thank you to you for being with us. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. This is ASIL International Law Behind the Headlines. Thank you.